Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me in this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. This is the first of a three-part podcast series on common hematological abnormalities which we're exploring with a very energetic and charismatic advanced trainee Dr. Thomas Liu. Now, observed abnormalities in the full blood count are not uncommon. They may be transient and mild, often involving one cell lineage, and most likely benign, or progressive, involving more than one cell lineage, and pointing us toward a condition requiring further investigation, possible referral and treatment. In fetal life, hemopoiesis occurs in the yolk sac and later in the liver and spleen. After birth, normal hemopoiesis is restricted to the bone marrow. Infants have hemopoietic marrow in all bones, but in adults, hemopoietic marrow is found in the central skeleton and proximal ends of long bones. Expansion of hemopoiesis down the long bones may occur in bone marrow malignancy, such as with leukemia, or where there is increased demand, such as with chronic hemolytic anemias. And both the liver and spleen can resume extramedullary hemopoiesis when there's marrow replacement, such as in myelofibrosis, or where there is excessive demand, for example, in severe hemolytic anemia, such as thalassemia major. Incredibly, the bone marrow produces more than a million red blood cells per second, in addition to similar numbers of white cells and platelets. And a common primitive stem cell in the marrow has the capacity to self-replicate and give rise to increasingly specialised and committed progenitor cells. The myeloid progenitors differentiate into platelets, red blood cells, eosinophils, neutrophils, basophils, macrophages, mast cells and dendritic cells. And lymphoid precursors differentiate into T cells, CD4 helper and CD8 suppressor cells, and B cells, plasma cells and memory cells, as well as natural killer cells. Now, in conditions of disease or physiologic stress, there may be a reduced number of cells in the full blood count assessment, suggesting decreased production or loss, for example, from bleeding, from sequestration in the splenial lymph nodes, or peripheral destruction. Elevated counts suggest an excess production, which may be reactive, physiologic stress, or reflective of a primary abnormality of the bone marrow or other hematopoietic organs. In this first of a three-part podcast series on common hematologic abnormalities, we'll begin by exploring the basis for anemia, the value of reticular site testing, iron replacement, and pointers to an underlying etiology. We will also explore the subject of polycythemia, noting that exogenous erythropoietin produced by the peritubular complex of the kidneys, which makes about 90% of our body's erythropoietin, joined by the liver and other organs, and binds to the erythropoietin receptor on the surface of the red cell, initiating signal transduction by phosphorylation of the Janus kinase 2, the JAK2, which leads in turn to gene transcription and red cell proliferation. The mutations in JAK2 underlie a pathologic increase of red cell production in polycythemia rupravira. Now, please join the conversation now with Dr. Thomas Liu, haematology advanced trainee at the Peter McCullum Cancer Centre with special interests in novel therapies for haematologic disorders. Now, uh, Thomas Liu, thank you very much for joining Everyday Medicine. It's a real honour and pleasure to have you here, Thomas, on a Sunday. It's pretty rare actually to have any sun in Melbourne Sunday, so I really appreciate you making time uh, to come and talk with me about common hemiplogic abnormalities, Tom. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we've got a lot to cover in this discussion. Uh, what I'd like to do before we kick off 
on on that subject is just to ask you about your journey into hematology. You're a hematologist at uh, Peter Mac. How did you get there and where are you headed? Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Luke. So, look, I, I was fascinated in hematology since I was a third-year medical student and um, loved the hematologists. They were intense and brainy, uh, got to know their patients really, really well because they were often staying for long and had long treatment courses and, you know, lots of complex care um, and loved the, the mysteries, you know, diagnostic challenges, therapeutic challenges, very emotionally intense work and that's what got me into it. And the other thing is um, that it, that hematology is so connected to its science. You know, the, the 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 science and the clinical practice so closely connected um, that that's another really exciting part. It's a big challenging part as well too, because even in the time that I've been a hematology trainee, the standards of care have changed in in myeloma, in in CLL things. Just new things are coming out all the time which keeps you on your toes. It's moving quickly, isn't it? I, I think I've spoken to some other hematologists, Tom, and they've all said exactly the same. This, you know, they, They're excited by the science. They're excited by um, what's opening up with their understanding of cell biology and how this is uh, allowing us to develop new molecules for treatment. It's, it is an incredibly exciting area. So, some areas in medicine seem to be more um, sort of pushed by products or by, uh, by techniques you know, gastroenterology is a bit like that. You know, we've got various techniques, yeah. which we get better at these techniques, but it's the, the science hasn't, uh, I think, pushed ahead like perhaps the science in haematology and oncology generally. Where do you think you'll head? You've got lots of different options in haematology from, you know, laboratory work to dealing with leukemias, which I know you have an interest in, and we'll talk about that later. But what's your special kind of, you know, interest, do you think? Yeah, well, I'm I'm fascinated by lymphomas, um, and, you know, lymphoid malignancies. Um, I got really lucky in that when I was a medical student, I fell in with the Venetoclax crowd um, at WeHi, the Royal Melbourne and Peter Mac. And at that time, you know, Venetoclax was still a new compound that we were still learning a lot more about. And I got to join that team, some amazing researchers there, Andrew Roberts, John Seymour, Marian Anderson, Contam, and... Um, got to get involved there, which is another great story, a Melbourne story about, you know, the discovery of BCL2, you know, decades ago, taking a long, long time, but then moving to this targeted agent, Venetoclax, which has changed the game in CLL and AML. Um, so that's been really exciting. And the next steps for me are to do a PhD as part of this new program in Australia called the MacTrack program, um, where they're trying to encourage advanced trainees to do a PhD concurrently um, and, and come out at the end, both a specialist and a clinician scientist. And that, that's the kind of direction I'm heading, and that's what gets me excited. Well, I'm looking forward to lots of publications for you, Tom, and uh, in due course, referring patients to you. Uh, you know, that would be a real real honour for me. Um, Good guide. If we know if we talk about common hemophilogic abnormalities that we like to see in sort of primary care medicine, and I know this stuff's going to be quite basic for you, but uh, oh. you know, it's really what I would like to sort of explore is when we should be referring people, patients for hemophilogic workup, because a lot of times we'll see a full blood count abnormality might be transient, might be a mild lymphopenia. It's often going to be benign; doesn't really lead to anything very much, but yeah. it's just a little bit nervous sometimes in primary medicine. And then, of course, we've got the more progressive changes 
across perhaps multiple cell lineages, which make us, uh, I think, acutely aware that we need to be referring that patient. Um, if we think about uh, reduced numbers of cells, be they white cells, uh, red blood cells, different sorts of white cells, platelets, or excessive numbers of cells. Can you just start off with that discussion? What do we normally start thinking about when we see a reduced number of cells? Where does your brain go with yeah. that? Yeah, and it's, it's actually a, such a fascinating, um, but, you know, in a way basic, but in another way fascinating area of, of hematology. And you're so right. So many of these abnormalities um, are transient, benign. If you just monitor them, they'll go away. But but also underneath them, you know, there's there's just something waiting, a diagnostic possibility waiting to sting you. Um, so when I think about low blood counts, you know, the chief question is, is it a production problem? Yes. Or is it a destruction problem? Um, and um, I mean, we'll go into those in more detail. But one other, uh, and one clue, two, two key clues I think that are really helpful there is if it's anemia, the reticulocyte count can be really helpful towards that question. And that can create a very clean binary between production and destruction problems. With, uh, with neutrophils and platelets, it's a bit harder because we don't have uh, like, a, like a neutrophil count to make the division so clean. But one tip I think um, that I've picked up is that if the counts are suddenly and severely low, like a platelet count that's suddenly five or a neutrophil count that's suddenly 0.1 in someone who's been previously well, it's nearly always immune or drug-mediated. And that's, that's a pretty neat sort of trick. Um, that can kind of just set you on the right path as you're thinking around the problem. And when it comes to elevated counts, then the, the question is nearly always, is it an appropriate physiological reaction to something or is it a primary blood problem? So, you know, with anemia, sorry, with, with, with polycythemia, the question is, is there some chronic hypoxia that the body is appropriately responding to trying to generate more red cells? Or is there a primary problem? Do they have polycythemia, ruprovira, you know, a mutation driving excessive proliferation? Um, but we'll get into that in more detail. And the one other really core principle, I think, um, that I'd like to sort of emphasize is that with all the, while you can get really lost in the numbers, a well patient is nearly always a well patient. A sick patient is nearly always a sick patient. And, um, you know, that, that, that shouldn't, the numbers shouldn't ever really distract you from that with maybe two exceptions, which is a well patient who has low neutrophils and a fever, they're, they're still sick and they still need acute care. And a patient who feels well but has blasts on film, they need, they need acute care. Mm -hmm. And so I reckon those are the two sort of really big ticket items that you wouldn't want to, that you could miss in someone who feels pretty good but is actually pretty sick. Yeah, they're, they're sort of the clinical pictures, uh, their, their physical condition hasn't quite caught up with what's happening. That's right. There. Yes. So, well, let's hit the red blood cell first of all, Kirby Thomas, and anemia. T take us through your approach to anemia. Yeah. So, you know, when I get a phone call about anemia, the first question I always ask, and I think it goes for all of these cell counts, is, is there some acute action you need to take right away to make the patient safe? And so... You know, the ballpark figure with anemia is a hemoglobin less than 70. They're likely to need a transfusion. And the hemoglobin above 70, they're unlikely to need a transfusion. Um, but the, the other factors to kind of incorporate in there is are they symptomatic? You know, are they dyspneic? Do they have chest pain? Mm. Or do they have 
some additional vulnerability to anemia? You know, do they have ischemic heart disease with stents or do you know that they've got, you know, poor coronary vascularization? So uh, those patients, you know, you, you would transfuse even in the um, even in the in the seventies, just below eighty. It's, um, it's quite a low and count. Then, isn't it? Seven's quite a low count. You know, when I was training, it was sort of nine was the figure. You you tended to transfuse below anything below nine. Yeah. And it's just drifted down and drifted down. Is, and is that because patients don't feel very well with hemoglobin seven and a half or eight? And I must say, I feel yeah. quite nervous when I see someone seven and a half or eight. And let's say they're not actually bleeding, which is what you're referring to if they're bleeding, okay, your response is going to be a little bit different. And I'm talking about yeah. bleeding or perhaps excessive ongoing um, menorrhagia or something of this nature. Then if they're feeling like quite feeble and weak and so forth, and they don't have angina and so forth, but they're still around about eight or so, is, is the thinking, well, we can give them an iron infusion if they're assuming that their problem is iron deficiency, and that would generally pick them up, but we don't have to then expose them to blood products on the expense of that and the risks of blood products. Is that the thinking? Yeah, that's right. So I think if you've got someone who's got a haemoglobin in the 80s and they feel like rubbish, if there's some immediately reversible problem, like iron deficiency, that you could start treating them, I think that's the right way to go. I think the the risks of transfusion um, don't favour you know, proceeding. But if it's more of a chronic problem, like uh, you know they have anemia of chronic disease and that they do this, uh, or they've got... Um, you know, uh, myelodysplasia or something like that, that, you know, you know is not going to get better. Well, that person I would transfuse. And I think there's another no, uh, no detail to note is I think in the community, I think it's reasonable to lean towards a, uh, to, to, to transfuse a little bit more liberally if you're not able to follow on someone up as closely as if they were an inpatient. Yes. Um, but still, every time we study um, what the right transfusion threshold is, we always find that the lower transfusion threshold is better. So there's definitely the benefit a benefit to transfusion, but it's probably also true that the majority of transfusions we use, um, you know, are not as beneficial as we think. Well, can you explain that? What, what's, a, what's your big concern with transfusing someone with hemoglobin, say, eight or eight and a half? Yeah, so I guess, you know, the the big worry would be that, they, that there's a, an, an error and they get incorrect blood you know, and they have a full-blown hemolytic transfusion reaction. Right, okay. But then even things like anaphylaxis, cardiac overload, trali, they're still, they're still rare. That's transfusion-associated lung injury. They're still rare, but they can make people really, really sick. So, you know, someone who's got a hemoglobin of 90, I nearly always ask myself, is there a good reason? You know, do, do they really, really need this? Mm-hmm. Um I think that, and, and below, so it, it's. I think you should think about the cutoffs less as something absolute and more. You know, this is the way the Red Cross de- describes the thinking. If it's less than seventy, ask yourself why. Why wouldn't I transfuse? And if it's more than eighty, sorry, if it's more than seventy, ask yourself why transfuse. I mean, if the patient feels really ordinary and you can't find any other reason, maybe that's a, maybe that's a good enough reason to proceed with transfusion. That's the way I think about it. Yes. So. You know, we have to think about, you know, occult blood loss in terms of an iron deficiency picture, and uh, that, that's where, you know, gastroenterology sort of really has a big part to play um, in in sorting that problem out, whether there's an absorption issue in regard to, say, celiac disease. But what this like, uh, chronic anemia of chronic disease, I often get a bit stumped on these because I often can't find the chronic disease. Uh, how, yeah. tell us about that. How do you approach that? 
think, well, what is the chronic disease of this patient? I can't really see anything very much. And yet if we may see, well, perhaps I'll ask you, can you explain how you approach that? How do you pick that in terms of the eye profile and, and the clinical picture? Yeah, so I think anemia of chronic disease is actually one of the trickiest uh, diagnoses to make, and it's often a diagnosis of exclusion. So, you know, it should be a persistent problem. You know, the textbooks say it should be normocytic or microcytic rather than macrocytic. I think that's a reasonable point. I think a macrocytic anemia, you're much less likely to label as chronic disease, and we might get into the reasons why. But then you just want to make sure that you have really thoroughly uh, interrogated all of the other possibilities. You usually want to see that the reticular sites are low in a near chronic disease. The idea of it, of course, is that there's chronic inflammation, um, there's activation of hepcidin, and hepcidin is basically this iron regulator that just shuts off iron transport around the body and makes iron less accessible to the, to, to the hematopoietic system. So... The idea should be that it's a hypoproliferative, low reticular site count problem. And you'd like to see that the ESR and, or CRP are elevated, or you'd like to see that they have chronic renal, renal failure or rheumatoid arthritis or some chronic inflammatory condition that's, that's compelling. Otherwise, I think you'll need to get some help from a hematologist and, and dig deeper and maybe even pursue a bone marrow biopsy um, before you know, formally labelling them. With that diagnosis, so the hep side right. produced by the hepatocytes, uh, that's right, has an inverse relationship with the ferroportin at the enterocyte membrane. And if we have more hep side and we have less ferroportin, we have less iron absorption across the enterocyte. You, but also, you're saying hep side has an influence on other cells more generally. Uh, so yeah, that's right. You know that picture we see with uh, low iron, low transferrin saturation, and often a highish ferritin. Can you just explain that that picture that we see in clinical practice? Yeah. So I mean, um, in the context of inflammation, your ferritin goes up, your transferrin goes down. Your transferrin saturation can be a bit unpredictable, but is often low, um, and uh, it can be it can be tricky in the context of chronic inflammation to tease apart whether it's uh, iron deficiency where the ferritin is being falsely elevated by inflammation or, or it's all just anemia of chronic disease. And for that reason, the way I try to approach that is I like to send a CRP with my iron studies. Yes. You know, if the CRP is single digit and the ferritin uh, you know, is above 100, well, I feel pretty confident that it's probably not inflammation driven, that that person probably is iron replete. But even then, sometimes you get a middling CRP and middling iron studies and that's where the soluble transferrin receptor can be another option. Um, this is a this is a you know it's a soluble transferrin receptor that is measurable in the blood and is elevated in true iron deficiency and is less vulnerable to the effects of uh, chronic inflammation. The problem with that is it's not particularly widely available. It's only done in certain labs and can often take some time to turn around. But in someone where you're really stumped with a chronic anemia, that can be a useful test. So the ferritin which is elevated, Tom, is this is being released, it's an acute phase reaction, but is it being released by inflamed tissues, wherever that inflamed tissue might be? Or, or you know, where's it coming from? Yeah, it, it's coming from activated macrophages. Um, and, and, you know, they're running around and, and, and having an inflammatory reaction and they release ferritin as part of that process. Okay. Um, and, you know, the most extreme example of that is hemophagocytosis, HLH, which is an, an extreme inflammatory response where the ferritin's in the tens of thousands above. 
but in standard, you know, anemia of chronic disease or, or you know, with elevated ferritin from inflammation, it's a similar process, just on a much lower level. Okay. And the iron, why is the iron low? Is, is, is there truly an iron, well, there isn't truly an iron deficiency. I think I can answer that question in general. But so why do we measure a low iron? Why is that? Like you mean the serum iron? Correct, yeah. Why is that incredibly yeah, yeah. low? Can you explain that one? Yeah, so I guess it's a similar concept that in, in the context of inflammation, hepcidin, I, I, the way I like to think of it is it basically puts you into an iron recession. There's just less iron activity throughout the whole body yeah. and it just shuts down iron transport everywhere. Yeah. We become you know, a banana Absorption of iron. That's, yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, so you, you're not absorbing iron, you're not releasing the iron that you have stored for physiological use. Okay. Right. Um, but I would also throw in there that of all of the items in the standard iron studies, the serum iron is the one I put the least stock in. Okay. Um, you know, it's very vulnerable to what you just ate. Um, and I generally don't find it guides me down the diagnostic path that often. Okay, well, that, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. Occasionally we'll see patients with thalassemia in clinical practice. I think that's, you know, I, I've had referrals and thought, oh, no, this is just a, this is the thalassemic actually that we're seeing. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, that's bread and butter, I know, for hematologists. Um, and, of course, I'll see patients with celiac disease who've got absorption issues and they might be anemic as a consequence of that. But, yeah, we've got to touch on macrocytic anemia as well there, Tom. It, we, I don't tend to see that yeah. so often now, alcohol, but... Um, in terms of nutritional deficiencies, not so often. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, um, we've almost sort of raced ahead. And, I, you know, the, the really fundamental thing with anemia is micro, normo, macro. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an oldie but a goodie, and I think that does work. I think we've covered the micros pretty well. Yes. You know, you think about iron deficiency, maybe a thalassemia screen in the right uh, ethnic population, and maybe chronic disease. Um, and, yeah, let's leave normocytic for a second and go into the macros. Uh, you know, liver disease, alcohol, um, hypothyroidism, uh, and B12 and folate, they're the most immediate and most common causes of macrocytic anemia, usually fairly mild, um, although, you know, B12 deficiency, you can get well and truly into the 120 range with your MCV. Um, but I think the ones that are a little bit less known or the traps for young players would be um, other drugs that have anti-metabolite effects can very much mimic B12 and folate deficiency. So the classic would be methotrexate, you know, an anti-folate metabolite. And someone who's on chronic methotrexate can also generate a macrocytosis and a macrocytic anemia. Other, many bone marrow failure syndromes can have a chronic macrocytosis. So myelodysplasia, aplasmia. And perhaps the other one that is, is easy enough to miss is actually reticulocytosis. So someone who's had a brisk um, destruction of the red cells, either by blood loss or brisk hemolysis, they get these reticulocytes, they're young, juicy red cells, slightly larger than your average mature red cell. And that can push up your MCV, but usually not to um, really high levels. You know, Normally, somewhere between 100 and 110. It's very hard to attribute an MCV of 120 or higher to a, to a reticulocytosis. It's normally mild. But that is, you know, th those are sort of the extra tips that I think, you know, sometimes people don't know as well. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, normocytic and normal chromic, do you want to make a comment about that as well? Yeah. So, so in the normocytic setting, um, that's 
Uh, I, I think reticulocyte, the reticulocyte count is useful in all of these instances because it, it really helps you divide into is it a production problem or a destruction problem. But in normocytic, I think that is the most powerful uh, test. Um, if the reticulocytes are up, well, you've got to ask yourself, are they bleeding or are they hemolyzing? And if the reticulocytes are down, you ask yourself, do they have a, a hematinic problem? You know, no red cells, uh, sorry, no, no iron, no B12. Or is there something in the bone marrow that's actually disabling the production? And I guess what that's all to say is that, especially in the normocytic and macrocytic setting, I tend to throw a fairly wide net of tests at these patients. So, um, you know, iron studies, B12 folate are easy. The full hemolysis screen, LDH, reticulocytes, bilirubin, direct Coombs test, haptoglobin, and thyroid function testing. Um, that's with with that basic panel, you'll nearly you'll get an answer in probably ninety percent of anemias that come through your door. Okay, well, that, that's a really handy tip. That's a very handy tip. And, and I think you know for the for the anemias that that kind of basic screen doesn't get you a clear answer, especially one where the reticular sites are low. That patient should see a hematologist and probably heading towards a bone marrow biopsy. Okay. I'd like to ask you about a practical tip as well. So suppose we've got someone who's anemic, they're not requiring transfusion at this stage, but we're going to replace their iron. Yeah. Um, okay, so with iron replacement, can you, or can you give it interventionally or orally, of course, are you going to be able to estimate roughly how fast the hemoglobin will climb in a healthy bone marrow? Yeah, there are rules of thumb. Um, I suppose um, I, I normally anticipate that within a few weeks, the red cells have jumped up by at least five to 10 points. Um, that would be kind of my very, very general rule. But by um, points, do you mean by points, do you mean grams per deciliter or point? Yeah, that's right. So uh, someone, someone with a hemoglobin of 80 who is getting an appropriate iron replacement, yeah. I would expect within a few weeks that, that, they could, that they could get up to about 85 and then continue to slowly increase. Okay. But um, on, on that subject, um, I think there's a couple of interesting points. I've seen quite a few cases of people with profound iron deficiency. You know, that diagnosis is beyond doubt. You know, they've got a ferritin 2 and they've got blood film changes very consistent with it. And maybe they've got a hemoglobin of 65. In some young people, they can tolerate that really well and they're asymptomatic. And, and in that group, you know, despite that normal threshold of 70 that we think about, I'd often strongly favour just giving iron first without necessarily rushing into transfusion because you anticipate that they're going to do really well. And when you're that deficient, you also absorb iron much more efficiently. Yes. yes. That would be something I'd throw in there. And then I, in the iron deficiency setting is that, as I'm sure you know yourself, Luke, that um, many patients really don't tolerate the oral iron. Correct. They struggle with it a lot. Um, constipation. Uh, they, yeah. constipation they get out by the dark stools, the black stools and so forth, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're becoming increasingly relaxed about IV iron. Mm. Um, yeah. I give IV iron all the time. And I think it's a pretty good solution for people who are not tolerating oral iron. You know, it's a, it's a one-shot, large, you know, usually a gram of ferric carboxymaltose will, will do the trick for the majority of patients. Yeah. Um, and they can start, you know, they can start feeling better within a few weeks. 
Tom, there is the Ganzoni equation that some people will say, well, we should follow the Ganzoni equation, work out how much iron. Is that something that you do practically or do you tend to just, you get them up, if they're iron efficient, you're going to give them a gram and because, you know, much more than that, perhaps there's a little bit too much on the Toyota one injection. Or do you, do you come back to the Ganzoni equation and use that as a guide? Yes. So so there's, there's increasing evidence to suggest that um, actually a gram's kind of good for what ails you. And, and you know, we, we fiddle around and sometimes the equation will, will give you 1.5 or even 2. But the vast majority of people will be well served by, by one gram of IV iron. And so actually in, in my own practice, I tend to just give one gram to nearly all my patients and, and, and just see how they go. As a practical tip, would you, that might not be enough iron, it might be perfect. Would you then repeat? Yeah. When would you repeat the full blood count and re- repeat their iron studies? Do you have a rule of thumb for that? Yeah. So in someone who is truly anemic with their iron deficiency, then I think that they should have a repeat blood test within four weeks. Yes. Um, and just see that you're you're getting an uptrend of their um, of their red cell count. With someone who is iron deficient alone, then they can just monitor their symptoms. And I often tell them, if your symptoms get better, you don't necessarily need to come back. And you can have a blood test in you know six months time in six months time to see how your iron's traveling, you know, and, and come back and see this sooner if you feel like your symptoms of iron deficiency are starting to redevelop. Yeah, there's a lot to cover there, isn't it? That's a lot, that's a lot on anemia. And I'm sure there's a lot more we can discuss. Is polycythemia, we were talking before briefly about polycythemia, the setting of uh, a physiological stress like perhaps airway D or but and the yeah. question is whether it could be a primary. Uh, issue mm. um, like polycythemia reprovera. Can you make a brief comment about polycythemia and, and when we should be, again, referring patients to you? Yeah, absolutely. Polycythemia is a, uh, an interesting challenge. I mean, again, to just briefly touch on the things that would make you really worried, someone with a very abnormal um, red cell count, you know, that's way above the upper limit of normal, who's got visual changes, neurological changes, or severe headaches, mm. we do get a bit nervous about those patients and that they might have hyperviscosity. Mm. It's pretty unusual to see that because that's quite a late presentation and you have to go quite a long time without a blood test to get to those kinds of symptomatic levels. But I think it is worth saying that that's something that would really set your alarm bells off. Sometimes these patients also describe a kind of burning itching, especially when they t- get out of a hot shower um, and they can get red, very painful fingers which is a bit of a sign as well that there are some significant physiological consequences of their polycythemia. But, but to be honest, most patients that we see, they've just got an abnormal blood count and they feel okay. So the first thing I think about with these guys, again, is, is it, is it re- an appropriate physiological reaction to chronic hypoxia or is it some primary bone marrow problem? And there is a, a few other rare, much, much rarer situations such as EPO excess, either someone who's injecting themselves with EPO that they're getting, uh, you know, uh, throughout without medical uh, prescription. Like the Lance, um, the Lance Armstrong syndrome. Kind of the thing. Lance Armstrongs of the world, yes. Um, sometimes we, we get nervous about um, the possibility of testosterone injections as well. Yes. Someone who's a you know, some, a bodybuilder with polycythemia, that's probably where I would start thinking about it. And then there are some very, very rare um, genetic high affinity hemoglobin disorders that cause the red cells to be high. But stepping back from that, um, the majority of people, it is going to be hypoxia-driven. 
they're going to have COPD or they'll be obese with obesity hypoventilation uh, or they smoke cigarettes. And even cigarette smoking without COPD can cause polycythemia. The other trap I think that is, that's easy to miss is sleep apnea, which, you know, is such a common condition. Yes. Um, and uh, it, it can be something that gets overlooked when we're thinking about why someone might be might have um, high red cells. All of that being said, though, um, even someone, you know, a lot of the patients might have these mild respiratory conditions or a plausible reason for hypoxia, but the question about a primary bone marrow problem is still um, on the on the cards. And so in the end, a lot of these patients with persistent polycythemia, say if it's observed over a blood test three months apart, will make their way to a hematology clinic, and that's appropriate. And we will often perform genetic tests on those patients to make sure that we're not missing a, a primary bone marrow problem. And the genetic test that is most essential in these patients is testing for JAK2 yes. mutations. Is that something um, we should do? Yeah, should we do that in clinical practice before they're referred to? Would that be helpful? Or is it? Uh, I would recommend sending someone to a hematologist for that. Um, personally, um, we you know, sometimes actually getting access to the testing can be a little bit difficult, and I, I, I would advise that that be done with hematology okay. oversight. Okay. Which is why I think most of these patients with persistent polycythemia should eventually make their way to a hematology clinic. Well, that's very, very handy. Um, thank you for covering red blood cells anemia. Can I now? Oh, can, I, can I now continue? Can I continue with uh, you addressing the next issue, which is going to be white blood cells? And um, can we tackle neutropenia? Thank you for joining me in the conversation today with Dr. Thomas Liu, advanced trainee at the Penamacom Cancer Centre. His enthusiasm for haematology is just contagious. It made me feel like going and studying much more haematology and talking with him a great deal more. And I look forward to sharing more conversations. Now, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au. Thank you.